Welcome back to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast from the University of Oregon. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife. Today's guest is the breakout star of NBC Peacock's hit show, Rutherford Falls, Jana Schmeeding. Jana graduated from the university with a degree in theater arts in 2005. She's a comedian, actress, writer, and creator of the podcast, Woman of Size. As a member of the Lakota tribe, Jana discusses the success of Rutherford Falls and how it's breaking barriers as the first major network TV show that was co-created and written by Indigenous people. And it also features Indigenous lead characters. Since recording the episode, Rutherford Falls was renewed for a second season. I stand on the shoulders of giants. I stand on the shoulders of Native people who have been subject to just some really intensely ridiculous uh, situations in in comedy, in mainstream comedy, on TV, in film, you know? So, like, I I feel like we're in sort of a new time where we are able to actually be ourselves and, and take up a little space. Today, alumna Tahira Hayes, a journalism graduate and host of the Tall Hungry Girl Talks podcast, speaks to Jana about her favorite memories at the University of Oregon, her experience navigating Hollywood as a Native woman, and the importance of opening doors for women of color in the entertainment industry. Thanks to both Jana and Tahira for joining us today, and to Raina Jackson for producing today's episode. Tahira, over to you. Welcome to the Duck Stops Here podcast. My name is Tahira Hayes. I'm a University of Oregon alumna. I'm also on the University of Oregon Alumni Association Board of Directors and host of the Tall Hungry Girl Talks podcast. I am so very excited today to interview Jana Schmeeding. Jana, I want to congratulate you on your new show, Rutherford Falls. How do you feel? Oh my gosh. Thank you. Um... I feel very overwhelmed um, in, and so I'm so happy about the show. I'm so happy that um, natives finally have a space in comedy um, and and yeah, I just I'm, I'm really excited for sort of our community and and the writers and and for hopefully the continuation of this sitcom. Yes. And now I can now tell all my friends that I know someone famous. So I'm, I'm... <laughs> I definitely don't feel famous. So <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Let's hope for a season two so that I can. Feel yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I think you've made it. It's okay. We'll declare it into the universe. Okay, so, great. okay. Um, okay. So for, before we really dive into the meat of the interview, I wanted to do a quick lightning round with you for all the alumni out there. Bring it back to your days at the University of Oregon. So a few quick questions so, you know, people can can really connect. Did you live in the dorms or off campus? I lived in the dorms for one, the semester before my freshman year, because I was in a writing program and I, it was, I stayed in Carson, which was like a big deal because, you know, it was for upperclassmen and athletes, or I I don't know at the time. And, uh, but I got, I got that, but mostly I stayed off campus. Uh, I lived at 28th and friendly for a couple of years, like in South Eugene. And then, um, and moved closer for the later years. Uh, I think I was at six, 17th and Patterson. Oh, I lived, I lived on 16th. We were, yeah, 
close by. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Carson was where the cat, wasn't that where the cafeteria was too? Yes. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was where like the big buffet, like all you mm-hmm. can eat like, and for dinner. <laughs> yeah. They had the good food at Carson. Yes. Cause <laughs> the grab and go, like, you know, you could get quick lunches and stuff, but Carson was, yeah. Yeah. So. And I was there uh, during like a summer, you know, a summer semester. So there's nobody else like the, except for the people in my program and like maybe some like student, like, you know, I, I don't know who was there, but it was very sparse. And I got to stay in a dorm by myself and I like pushed the twin beds together to make a bigger bed, even though I only slept on one side at a time. <laughs> But just the feel of like having, yeah, I actually did that with my roommate, but, um, we like, it was called big bed anyway, (laughs) (laughs) just having, yeah. And freshman things. Mm -hmm. Okay. What was your favorite memory from your time at the university of Oregon? Boy, that one's hard. Uh, I have so many great memories, but, uh, I was a theater major and I did, um, I did several, shows uh while I was there I was in the musical Chicago uh while I was there that was really fun I was the lead in a play my senior year uh directed by John Schmore and uh it was called Wild Nights with Emily where I played a uh lesbian Emily Dickinson oh fascinating yeah it's really fun what's a random thing only a U of O alum knows about or can relate to I want to say uh like Taylor's loaded fries. I was just gonna say <laughs> Taylor's or or no Rennie's Rennie's has the loaded fries I feel like I had like t- t- uh Rennie's was my was like the the spot because it was closer to Villard where the theater department is and uh but when I really wanted to you know fall down on a dance floor uh slip and fall I would go to Taylor's so <laughs> Oh, cool place. Not get down, but fall down. Yeah, actually fall (laughs) on my ass. (laughs) Okay. So what does it mean for you to be a duck? For me, it means, uh, it means having, um, a niche for my various interests. I was really involved in, um, you know, student organizing. I was a co-director of the Multicultural Center uh, in the EMU, and I was an active member of the Native American Student Union. And and through the Multicultural Center, we collaborated a lot with all of the different ethnic cultural student unions. And uh, we did a lot of event planning and, and just like, you know, we were very heavily involved with political issues, both locally and, you know, nationally is like where I sort of found my activist roots, my advocate roots. And, um, in collaboration with other um, people of color. And these are friendships that I carry through, you know, into my adulthood. Um, and also I, I really got to explore my passion in the performing arts. And and I sort of, I had so many opportunities, not only to develop my own work and sort of sort through my own, um, my own voice, uh, but I found comedy at U of O. Uh, I found community at U of O and, uh, and yes, and, and that all of those skills have helped me to be who I am today, so. It's a, it's really a place where you can like plug in. Yes. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I felt like there was a protest on campus almost every single day. And so it really ignited activism. 
I feel like the campus definitely does that too. Okay, so we will move into um, what I consider kind of the heart of the interview. So your TV show was picked up for a full 10 episode season, all streaming on NBC's Peacock. So everyone watch it. It is absolutely hilarious. I, I have watched it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I want to go back to the beginning, before the show, before the U of O, talk to us about where you're from and where it all started. Yeah. Um, well, I am a Lakota Sioux native. I'm Minneconju and Sachangu Lakota. I grew up in um, Canby, Oregon. Um, I was born actually at Sacred Heart Hospital in Eugene. My grandparents lived in Eugene and they were very... Um, I would say sort of like pillars in the, the native community in um, the Eugene area and Southern Oregon area. And um, I, I come from a family of educators. Um, my, and, and, you know, my dad was a duck. My, my grandma got a PhD at the University of Oregon in um, indigenous women in early childhood education when she was a grandma. Um, and, and so uh, I was like very much an Oregonian through and through. I like was, uh, grew up um, as like one of the few indigenous families in a, in a small town, a small rural town. Named after a notorious Indian killer, General Canby is, you know, famously, infamously a, a a person who, uh, a, a cavalry general who was trying to um, put the Klamath and Modoc people on the same reservation in Oregon. And so um, he was assassinated by the Modoc people actually. And there's just a lot of, a lot of like similarities to uh, Rutherford Falls and my own upbringing. Um, and yeah, I was just raised to be a very vocal advocate about my identity and my history and um, was sort of a, a little educator from the time, you know, that I started school. As soon as my mom saw that, you know, our preschools and elementary schools were going to make us dress up like pilgrims and Indians, we flew in there and, you know, did a lot of um educating our our peers and our teachers and and so that is uh that's sort of the way I was brought up is just like a, a little teacher and so so was it was I guess U of O was probably a pretty natural choice since you had family that went there did you apply to other like I didn't I only applied to U of O <laughs> people always laugh at me but I'm like like you I have lineage there yeah I I sort of uh I wanted to stay well, you know, financially, I couldn't afford to go out of state, and um, and I got a, an, a full ride academic scholarship. I, uh, it was a diversity building scholarship from the University of Oregon, and so I was part of a cohort of um, of students of color who, uh, you know, got these these scholarships, and um, you know, it, like supported by. Uh, I don't know what the department is called now, but it's sort of like the admission, the multicultural affairs admissions department. And, um, and, and we were very supported when we came to school and, and yeah, there was like, I mean, my, my family is full of ducks. There's a couple beeves in there, but uh, <laughs> there uh, always is though, right? There always are. <laughs> got a, my got siblings, went, yes, my siblings <laughs> went to OSU. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, 
ride or die for Pac-12, no matter what. Yes, like, exactly. But my my uh, immediate family are are all ducks. My sister got her uh, undergrad in theater arts and her master's in the Sopsiquatla uh, Indian Education program at U of O. So I come from ducks and Eugene also because my grandparents lived there was a very natural next step after high school. Um, and yeah, it was sort of like very idyllic. Um, uh, it was a really, really wonderful place, uh, sort of a home away from home uh, vibe. So now that you're in LA, what do you miss most about like being in a small town fr from where you're from? And then also Eugene, because Eugene is, is a, you know, mid-sized town as well. I also lived in New York for 10 years and New York food is better than LA food and Eugene food, but I still miss Eugene food because it's like the memories yes. and, and the consistency with which you would go to a place. Yeah. Um, I mean like burrito boy, extra oh, wet. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. You mentioned that you lived in New York and that they had amazing food. So tell us about like many people may not know that your part of your career journey included you being a teacher there for 10 years, right? Yeah, I lived in New York for 11 years. And for 10 of those years, I was a teacher in public in um, uh, Bronx public schools. Um, so I lived and worked uh, in the Bronx for many years. And yeah, it was a, a huge learning experience. And it was like the joy of my life. I loved the work. Um, I loved my students. And was challenging work but like yeah it was because kids exciting. can oftentimes be tougher critics I find than adults I mean they're they're honest like they're oh, yeah. like pure but you know it so it almost hurts worse because you're like oh I know what you're saying is probably you know the truth um so what did you teach I taught um, humanities and special education okay um so I I I uh, worked with students with um, disabilities, intellectual disabilities, but also social emotional disorders. And so I had uh, just a really wide range of um, high need students. I feel like I had the best kids always. <laughs> I, I loved my students so much and I missed that part of it, working with young people. Um, but yeah, they're brutally honest. Oh my God. Like you couldn't come to work like looking crappy or some, <laughs> somebody's going to say something, you know, I had so many, I used to laugh so hard at my kids. They'd be like, miss, you did not sleep last night. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so do you feel like that prepared you for stand up? Because it's like, you have to come back with something and you can't just be like, shut up. You have to actually... <laughs> have a, yeah, a proper I mean, response yeah I think that like having a good sense of humor in in a classroom is a huge uh is is huge um yeah but I also wasn't a teacher before I was a comedian I was a comedian before I was a teacher and I wasn't necessarily just doing stand-up in fact I didn't really get into stand-up until later in my career when I came to LA I was mostly doing improv comedy and sketch comedy and and character comedy um in New York at night and it was a real grind it was like you know waking up at six in the morning and teaching until four and then rushing down to Midtown to perform or direct or both or write um, or collaborate um, and 
yeah, it was a is is a real education living there um, in many ways. And like, do you, how did you end up? I guess like studying theater and then going into teaching was was it like New York your goal to to New just York be was there? my goal. Okay. Uh, performing was my goal in New York. I didn't really know what capacity that was going to exist in my life. Um, but really the reason I became a teacher was because of poverty. I was really struggling to like make ends meet and, and I didn't want to just live to work in New York. You know, it's, it's a, it's a challenging place to exist if you don't have, uh, a passion, a reason for being there, you know? That's why a lot of people talk about sort of the 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 hustle, the grind of New York. It it is the way it is because people who go there go for a reason. Yes, there's a purpose to be there, and I I was my purpose ended up being comedy, and and I couldn't afford when I was just working service jobs, I couldn't afford to pay for class comedy classes. I couldn't afford to like be a part of the community, and so I really. Um, I knew that I was a good facilitator. I had done a ton of like leadership activities in, in high school and college. And so, um, and also I come from a family of educators. And like I said, I have been teaching people my whole life. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I, so it's a natural transition. Yeah. And I, and I care about it, you know, like yes. I care about public education and I care about uh, quality education for all people. And so, yeah, I, uh, I became a teacher after a year of just really struggling and, and, and it did, it did exactly what I needed it to do. It, it sustained me. And it also gave me, uh, amazing skill sets personally and professionally and it handling a room of people. Like yeah. that's what you do in, in, you know, and, and acting and comedy and yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So moving on to talking about your podcast, which I love woman of size. If you know, for all of those who may be interested in listening, I love the concept of it and, um, discussing the ways that we think and talk about our bodies and claiming space. What was the genesis of that? You know, I, I, I'm always, I always have several different creative projects happening at once. And I wanted to try podcasting as well. You know, it's like one of those creative things that comedians often do. And I was like, I want a piece of that too. I uh, have always struggled, you know, with my own body dysmorphia, essentially, just like, you know, and I've struggled with my self-image and self-esteem. And a lot of that came down to um, my body and my and my size and my shape and, and the person that I've always been. Um, so it, the podcast started as a comedy project with other women of size in comedy and sort of how are we taking up space in comedy um, and not existing as the butt of other people's jokes and rather yeah. creating jokes for ourselves. But then it became much more of a research project. And I started to um, become interested in interviewing, you know, writers and thinkers and uh, researchers around weight stigma and what that means more broadly in our culture. Like, what does it mean to live in the intersection of fat and native or fat and black or queer, you know, and fat and like all of these things that, um, you know, sort of coalesce to create a, a complex form of oppression. 
that was really the genesis. Um, and yeah, I, I just got to, I got to research all different kinds of topics in there, including, you know, my own nativeness and food sovereignty and, you know, uh, uh, the diet industrial complex. Yeah. Dieting. Like, diet I, I loved it. Like, I love the, the, the topics that you touch on because I feel like it's this, this like elephant in the room that we're not talking about is like how all of these things are being like women are just being like shoved with like imagery and it's like no woman looks like this everything is airbrushed yes. you know and and you touch on so much of that and i feel like it it you normalize that it's okay to be whatever or whoever you are so i just yeah. I, I think that. also, you know, beyond just existing in our skin and like, you know, finding self-love, which I think are kind of, uh, they're not, they're, they're like a, a little bit more like on the surface of what I think we are, we can, would consider quote unquote body positivity. But we, when we get down into, you know, body justice and, and look at it as a justice issue, what we find is that, you know, um, weight stigma affects us on so many different levels. We are affected by it um, in medicine, you know? Yeah. We have it, like ill access to medical care, um, in employment, um, fat people are overwhelmingly uh, disproportionately affected by unemployment and, uh, you know, entertainment media you know we're yeah you don't see uh straight side you, you barely see uh non-thin people on tv or in movies and 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 that was really where i was like seeing that i was experiencing sort of a double erasure in my own life that i was both experiencing erasure as a native person and as a fat woman so yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, I just appreciate you having it because it, it, it made me like feel, I guess, just like more open to how I view other people, just more aware. And then also how I view myself. So yeah. I, I think it's great. And I think that people should check it out. So <laughs> that Thanks. and your TV show. <laughs> okay. So talking about your, you know, your current city, LA, I want to play a clip where you share your experience about living in LA. Um, and I, 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 people really need to to hear this because it really captures like the essence of your comedy. So we're going to go ahead and play that right now. It's a, uh, it's pretty crazy living in LA as a native person. I think a lot of people here want to appropriate uh, our culture. There is just something so inherent about being white that is taking. <laughs> find out that I'm Native, the uh, overwhelming response uh, is something like this. Me too! Do it. <laughs> 
Burning Man reference <laughs> is what really got me. Yeah, I we mean, got we got a problem at Burner, Burning Man, guys. <laughs> yes. I mean, like the I the clip is hilarious, but it's it's touching on a very serious subject, right? Like cultural and and that is like most of I feel like what comedy is is like turning like the heartache of life into to something funny. But you touch on cultural appropriation, white culture and native culture. I mean, it's so fresh and funny. What are some of your other cultural observations from your time in New York, LA, or even Eugene? And how do you, how have you worked that into your comedy? Oh gosh, I mean, there's so much about being a native person is about sort of existing outside of whiteness and being able to peer into it. And and it really, I, I, I do think, I argue that native people are, um, you know, in many ways, similar to um, to black folks, like native folks are just really good cultural critics. We see what's happening, and and you know, we live under a, a sort of in a colonial paradigm that isn't ours, and and so we've been we've been forced to assimilate to the to white ways, but but also able to live outside of it. So, I mean, everywhere I go, I, I can see sort of the um, the pervasiveness of whiteness and white culture. And, and, and you know, it's, it's fresh because native people are never allowed into these spaces. You know, it takes, for, it takes forever for us. We have just got a show, a comedy show on TV for the first time in 2021. Yeah, which is I mean, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. It's also extremely frustrating. <laughs> yeah, by amazing, I mean like amazing that why why did it take this long? You know. Yeah. But also amazing that it's you. Yeah, I mean, I I stand on the shoulders of giants. I stand on the shoulders of native people who have been subject to just some really intensely ridiculous, uh, you know. Uh, situations in not in, in in comedy in mainstream comedy on tv in film you know so like i i feel like we're in sort of a new time where we are able to actually be ourselves and and you know use our point of view uh and take up a little space yeah no absolutely um so in terms of i guess touching on taking up space and having a seat at the table. You and I, I believe that we both graduated in 2005. You graduated yeah. in 05, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Which is crazy. I'm like, do I, do I know her? Have we met before? <laughs> we might have. No. <laughs> you spent any time at the EMU. We I probably did. have. I did. Tall, my nickname is Tall Hungry Girl and I was always eating, so. <laughs> Hell yeah. I was also <laughs> always eating. <laughs> I'm very much a short, hungry girl. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, so I remember in the early 2000s, though, there was an underlying understanding. And I mean, even I think even so now, I, I we've had some change, but there was an underlying understanding that there were only a, a set number of seats for women in places of power. We're seeing that shift. Obviously, we have a female VP, but we still don't have a female president. Um, but because of this, I personally tried to change that and help other women instead of seeing them as competition, like encouraging them just in my daily life, workplace. Um, one piece of advice that I got was to send the elevator elevator back down after you've made it a few flights up. Are, the, are there women that you're doing this for in your life now? 
Um, did someone do this for you? Many women have done it for me and they've been my peers because it's so hard to find uh, women in places of power in comedy uh, who are accessible. Um, the, largely the, the people who have, um, you know, a space, uh, you know, any leverage in this industry or in this field are white women. And I find that, uh, you know, it's, it's harder to have access to those people for me. So I, I have Sierra Teller Ornelas, who's the showrunner of Rutherford Falls. She's Navajo and Mexican American. And she, um, she has been instrumental in pulling me up. She's, you know, she was a guest on my podcast and that's how we met. And she saw me perform live and she asked for my writing samples and I had them. And she has like, she has been the one who's been pushing me and pulling me into this, um, the space that I'm, I am in now. I mean, it really took, I was for three years, I was trying to get people to read my scripts and to get staffed on a show, um, and to be a, a professional writer, TV writer. Um, and it wasn't happening. I was submitted myself to so many different, uh, festivals and competitions, script competitions, and it just was not happening. And I was really like, okay, the industry does not want what this is. The industry is not interested in women, native women specifically. Um, uh, especially stories about us. Um, and it really took another native woman to see me and to pull me up. Um, and I also have been, you know, uh, supported so much by other women of color in comedy in here in Los Angeles. I mean, there's really a strong community of uh, women who are just like out to win and out to help each other win. And that has been truly instrumental in my, in my career, um, you know, but it just, I was a huge, also a huge part of the podcast for me was, was building a community of women who, um, women and, and non-binary folks and people of all genders really, but like who understand the struggle, what we were all kind of going through. And we've, a lot of us are still really good friends and we have our own community and, and it's, uh, it's just so important to have community with other people, with other people of your same ilk and, and, uh, um, I, I cannot wait until I have the opportunity to pull others up. Like, I do not know where I can do that. I, I do it as much as I can in my current, like, existence. But all of this is so new to me. I'm, yeah. like, very well, and, fresh to this industry. And I and this can't interview, wait. This interview may be, you know, you may be inspiring another Native woman or even another woman, you know, that, yeah. you know, has things in common with you. So... Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, ultimately I really think it, we, we have to rely on each other and, um, build community with each other and, and make it part of our, uh, mission to reach behind and pull other folks up. Yeah, absolutely. Someone once told me that if a role doesn't exist for you, you should create it yourself. And it seems like that's exactly what you have done with the character Regan Wells and Rutherford Falls. Tell me how you hope your portrayal of this character will change the narrative of natives on TV and in the media. I live by that, you know, motto. I think as a woman and as a non-white woman uh, in, in like the performing arts, you just have to make 
material for yourself. You have to find your solo grind. You have to just like build your own career because nobody's looking for you. <laughs> really, nobody's looking for you. It's the, it's the harsh world because our, our industry, this industry is so white um, and so male dominated. Um, but, but we have our own stories to tell and we need an opportunity to tell them because when we do, we get things like Rutherford Falls. We we see we get to play whole people, you know, with inner lives and families and and laughter. Um, and so that has been something that has been really refreshing about this show for me as a performer, uh, certainly, but also as a viewer. For the first time, I'm seeing Native Joy on TV myself, and and it's really exciting. What's your favorite episode so far? <sighs> Boy, uh, a lot of people are into Her episode. Favorite- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, good. A lot of people are really into episode four because it's sort of the moment that it that solidifies that this isn't this is a story that is about the ensemble and not necessarily just about Nathan. And Terry takes up a little bit of uh, attention in episode four. And um, but I'm really into episode eight, the casino conference, <laughs> uh, because I really just like. Uh, the Regan Terry dynamic, uh, this mm-hmm. sort of like shark and shark and training. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I love uh, conference material. I don't know. <laughs> I found myself laughing out loud, which happens, I think, you know, during a lot of shows, I'll kind of like giggle to myself, but it's rare that I like that I laugh out loud. <laughs> I, there was a moment in um, episode two where I was like, like, vocally laughing and I'm like wow this this show is really good so <laughs> thank you I, yeah. I, yes I appreciate it so Jen Cheney of vulture.com named you the breakout star of Rutherford Falls yay clap clap <laughs> calling you a natural I am curious how are you dealing with this newfound attention and how has your family reacted to your success I know for me any any success that I you know I have three siblings and my parents tormented me with you know, saying that I was adopted my entire life as a joke. (laughs) So it's like, I've always had, you know, humbling. I don't know if your family is the same way. Like my family (laughs) would never, if I ever became famous, it would be like, yeah, nice try. (laughs) Don't come home with that crap. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess my family's really excited. I mean, they love the show so much. My, My parents are my biggest supporters. They like come to every comedy show. They love my material. Uh, I, I come from like a big, like joyful laughing family. So we oh, really thrive that. in, in comedy. Um, but yeah, they've been super supportive. Uh, they're coming to visit me in LA this weekend for the first time since, you know, the, the, since the holidays of 2019. Also my grandma's really proud of me. Um, Ultimately, everybody's really happy about the show. Really, that's amazing. So you're not you're not getting humbled like I might get if (laughs) I were to be in your shoes. (laughs) Well, I will say that, like uh, like I said before, it's not. I don't feel like a famous person. There is nothing. I I think you need to start owning it because you are. So there you go. Here's what I here's what I need. I need I need the University of Oregon to give me courtside seats to women's basketball, baby. That'll make me feel famous. Hopefully, you know, someone 
like in athletics can hear this and it can come to fruition. Okay. Like you have to put it out in the universe. We're doing that. So <laughs> I know I just love Oregon women's basketball so much. I mean, I was yeah. a basketball player, my, not at Oregon, obviously, but like I was a basketball player, you know, in, yeah, in yeah, yeah, yeah. educational career. And I just like, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well it's out there. So we'll, we'll have to say, yes, exactly. Um, okay. So two more questions for you. I read an article um, where someone asked you what advice you would give an individual at the start of his or her career. And you said, work hard and be loud. Tell me what that means to you and how do you embody your own advice? Um, I think, um, you know, Ultimately, I'm 39 right now, and I just, yeah, you know, 2005. Uh, I I feel like um, if you're not a person who is like comes from like a legacy family in in any industry, that you're not like a shoe in for a for a career, a role in a career, then you're really hustling to get to the place that you want to be in your career. And I really feel like it just takes a a lot of hard work, a and 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 uh, and while I wish that we didn't live in a grind culture, like that's really what it took for me to get to the place that I'm at. And um, but I think hard work can also look different for every person. You know, hard work doesn't mean just constantly working and working and working. Hard work also means deep work. It means doing self-work. It means doing, you know, in, investigating the world around us. And it means, you know, trying different skills and and learning how to be like a good uh, community member. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think being loud is just really important. I think especially for Native people, we have to learn, uh, we have to be, um, we don't have to learn. We already know how to be loud, but we need to be seen. Visibility is our biggest struggle um, in many in many cases, and especially around our justice issues and 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 around our our ability to succeed in this world and and uh, both personally and professionally. So I I really say uh, you know be loud, take up space. I'm working on it. I'm not great at it, but I've been really trying. And I, and I will say like the, the, the hustle, the grind doesn't stop, you know, when you reach a certain place, like it just becomes different. It looks different at different eras of your life. And so I'm entering a different phase of working hard. I'm, I'm working differently now. And, uh, and I do have a little bit more of a voice. And so I'm really, um, preparing myself to get, you know, I'm getting ready to just exercise my voice in a different way on a different level. Absolutely. And I think too, like by being loud, it's like, even in meetings where typically, you know, getting mansplained or, you know, just like speaking up and not being those very, it starts small. I, and it can just, you know, grow from there, getting your confidence that what you, your ideas are smart and you should say them. So yeah, that's great. Um, okay. So last question, you had mentioned that you typically have a lot of projects going on at once. Um, I know that your, your television show is probably, um, you know, the work and stuff surrounding that is, is probably taking up a lot of time right now, but what is next for you? 
Um, you know, I hope that a season two is next for the show. And I also have been working on a couple of projects, writing projects for myself. And, uh, you know, I hope to be, uh, I hope that my work gets purchased, picked up, produced, uh, and that, you know, eventually I can get my own original comedy made. Um, so yeah, I still have several different projects functioning at once and all of them are sort of long-term projects the more the most immediate thing that i have going on right now is rutherford falls and um and i'm delighted to have that in my life yes can you give us any any sneak peeks on any of the projects you have or are they (laughs) i mean they're so far away from being anything so like Let's just say a lot of comedy projects and hopefully eventually some drama. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, I hope everyone that is listening checks out Rutherford Falls. It's amazing. And then also, um, I know that you're not currently doing your podcast right now, but if they want to check out previous episodes of Women of Size, it's on Apple, um, Apple Podcasts and I believe Spotify as well. Yeah, it's pretty much anywhere you can, you listen to podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been so enjoyable. Thank you so much, Jana. And I thank hope you for you have having me. Yes, yeah, thank you. Go Ducks. Go Ducks. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links about our guests and info about how to stay connected to the U of O. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Duck Stops Here.